Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. I was one of the 24, 25,000 or so down at Rogers Center for that game last night. And for the first time in a long time that I can remember anyway, Toronto Blue Jays got booed by the home crowd. And how could you blame them? How could you blame them for the low attendance this week? Of course, kids are back to school. The economics of the world and taking a family to a baseball game and things like that, all of that is very, very real. This team has not played particularly inspired baseball. And yes, in a very tight playoff race in the biggest series of the season, maybe we expected bigger crowds. But what last night and this series have continued to highlight is that while this team isn't bad, they're narrowly out of a playoff spot, they have a nice run differential, they have a great pitching staff, etc. With the exception of maybe the Brave series and certainly the Davis Schneider at Fenway series, this team has been a joyless watch over the course of the season. There has not been an extended streak of fun baseball. There is not there have not been a lot of big big moments. And yes, there are Cool things. Bo Bichette was the hottest hitter in baseball for a little bit. Yusei Kikuchi and Jose Brios had monster bounce back years. Hyunjin Ryu's came back and been been really solid in an unexpected return. There are there are always going to be positive things and fun things. Sometimes when a, it's a it's something like hey a pitcher's having a better season than you expected. Well, that's not really acute, right? That's not day to day. That's not series to series even. There have been precious few stretches of play where this Blue Jays team was really fun. And that is, you know, as much as record drives uh, attendance and excitement and engagement and things like that, being a likable team that plays an enjoyable brand of baseball goes a long way too. And these three games against the Texas Rangers have been a nice highlight on the joylessness of this Toronto Blue Jays season. They lose 10 to nothing last night against the Texas Rangers. They roll over. And if you think the 10 is a, is a big number, well, three of those were insurance runs in the ninth. And to be completely honest, when they got down 4 nothing in the fourth and then 6 nothing in the fifth, I don't think anyone had the confidence that the bats were going to be able to come back in that game. The Jays have scored 24 runs over their last seven games. That includes three against Kansas City and one against Oakland. They're just not scoring. And this Texas team is one that came in really struggling with run prevention. And yeah, Jordan Montgomery was fine yesterday. He uh, he stuck to a game plan. The Jays didn't make him come out of that game plan whatsoever, even though half the roster has a history of success against him. Okay. Jordan Montgomery still, you know, he's good. He's not that guy that should be able to shut down a playoff bound offense on his own just by sticking to a pretty straightforward game plan. Haven't been able to get into a very bad Texas Rangers bullpen much certainly have allowed Bruce Bochy to rest that bullpen a little bit and use it strategically. Did a little bit of damage against them in the first two games, but not really. The bats just aren't going yesterday. They had, there's not really a a good way to query this. So I don't know how often it's happened, but here's my guess. Not very often. The Jays lost 10, nothing. And on the nothing side of that, they didn't put a runner in scoring position. They got a big old O for O with runners in scoring position. They uh, they did put six guys on base, five hits and a walk, but two of those turned into double plays and four of them were stranded on first base. I guess a hat tip to Santiago Espinal and Ernie Clement, who both had two hit games and Ernie Clement had a tremendous, tremendous play at shortstop 
early in the game. But that's it for your your headline positives from this one. You say Kikuchi really struggled, was catching too much of the plate, uh, gave up two pretty big home runs, uh, one of which the shot to center field that hit the wall with a thud. I don't know. When's the last time a Blue Jay hit a ball like that? That that was a no doubter off the bat, and you felt real good about. Um, look, Kikuchi had a bad outing. The bullpen was a weird one. I, I was a little surprised. Bowden Francis only got one inning when he's supposed to be the mop up guy. Um, Chad Green obviously didn't look great in, in his spot there. But even if the pitching staff had been a little better, when this team gets behind by a couple runs, it doesn't feel like a comeback's possible. They they have lost the last 19 games in a row, by the way, when they get behind three runs in a game. That is, uh, that, there is just not a catching up speed. They're not a horse that likes to run from behind and make its, uh, make its final push in the last leg there. They need to be a front runner and they have not done that nearly enough. Someone who at times last night on Blue Jay Central sounded exacerbated with you know, talking about the the same things that this team can't seem to figure out was Joe Siddle. He joins us now. Joe, good morning, man. How you doing? Good morning, Blake. I'm doing just fine. Another day today, I guess, is the motto, isn't it? It sure is. And that could go one of two very different ways, Joe. That <laughs> This could be another day like the last three, or it could be a day where, you know, we all feel like we went a little over panicky after last night. Um, three games into this series, Joe, we all set it up. Biggest series of the season. You control your own fate if you if you take care of this series, et cetera. And they have not only no a complete no show last night, but more or less no showed the first three games of this series. Before we get into some of the specifics offensively, what do you make of that from just a high level of, you know, not at all meeting the moment these last couple of days? Uh, it's just horrible timing, of course. Uh, I'll be honest, Blake, coming off of that weekend, I- I know there's so much hype around this series, and I know this has been marked on the calendar and circled for a few weeks now, but I wasn't necessarily in that camp only because, you know, there's still three weeks here in this final, including this series, to play. Uh, But I also didn't anticipate losing three straight games (laughs) to the Rangers. So, I mean, you know, you can certainly still come back. They're right in it. You can say all those things because those are facts. I mean, they're not mathematically out of it by any means yet. But now you're going to need to play a lot better. Um, this is such a roller coaster team. It's such a roller coaster game. We've seen this throughout the course of many baseball seasons. And I, I did think to myself, and I said to a few people going into yesterday, like they could rattle off the next two games against Texas. They could take two out of three against Boston this weekend, and we're right back in that better mindset. But clearly, it didn't get off on its right foot last night. So uh, it, it's offense. It's offense. That's all we keep talking about is offense. Mm-hmm. And this offense has been mystifying all season long and maybe I shouldn't say mystifying as much as just not what we expected. I mean, I'll be the first to raise my hand in the off season when all those moves were made and the direction that this team went, you know, even with the Moreno trade for Varshow, you know, I'm thinking here's a guy that hit almost 30 home runs and new dimensions at the Rogers center. He'll be good for 25 to 30 here. And you've got Kirk and Jansen, who are two guys that have been around a little bit now and know this staff, know this team. They're ready. They're they're capable of, of winning now because that's where this team was. I mean, everything went in that direction. They improved the outfield defense. The pitching staff, of course, has been great, and part of that is that outfield defense. But, man, are we ever missing some offense? And it's not just the guy that is in Seattle right now. It's the guys that are here. It, who would have predicted the, the downturns and the production? 
of a Springer, of a Vladdy, of a Kirk. I mean, those, again, I say those are three of your top four hitters in last year's lineup. That was top five in Major League Baseball. Yeah, and now you are 16th in runs and 18th in home runs. And even if you prefer a stat like a, a WRC Plus that tries to adjust for some of our, our contacts factors, you don't come out looking particularly rosy in that either. You're seventh or eighth, so not where you, uh, where you needed to be there. So, Joe, th- this has gotten... There have obviously been times where all we talked about was the offense because it wasn't coming around. And at times it's been runners in scoring position or the long ball or this guy's slumping. They have scored 24 runs over the last seven games. And those seven games came against Oakland, three against Kansas City. So four against absolute bottom feeders and then three against a Texas Rangers team that just had one of the most dramatic months in recent memory preventing runs. Um I know that this is something you and I have talked about on and off air before. I look at some of the ways in which the Jays have, you know, failed to get to an Oakland starter early, a Kansas City starter early, not guys with mon- like Cole Reagans I can get there with. He, he has monster stuff. Um, you know, even a Max Scherzer, he's a vet guy. His stuff was, re- his cutter was awesome the other day. I can get there with some of it, but a guy like Jordan Montgomery who kind of just does everything at an okay level it really did seem like last night he picked a game plan, picked a lane, and the Blue Jays never managed to nudge him outside of it. Do you think that's a that's an accurate assessment of what Montgomery, why Montgomery was able to dominate the Blue Jays the way he was? Yeah, I mean, I talked about it post game as you just kept watching. I mean, here, Blake, I'm, I prepare for the games every day. I look at each starting pitcher and I jot my little, you know, what pitches they use and what the opponents hit against. I kind of get a little idea of, of who the Blue Jays are facing. And I do it. I did it tonight already for Nathan Evaldi. So I did it yesterday for Jordan Montgomery. And that takes, what, about 10 or 15 minutes? Okay. Sinker, changeup guy, clearly against righties. He's probably going to stay away from them. I'm thinking, oh, that kind of blends into the Blue Jays' offense, too. That's probably okay. They, as hitters now, you got to prepare for that tonight, right? You're probably going to get a lot of sinkers down, middle away, a lot of change-ups away. I mean, that's, you know, mixes in the breaking ball, might come in on occasion, but really your focus is sinker change-up from the lefty, middle away, and guess what we saw? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of that. That's what, we, that's what we saw. And, I mean, early on, it's, um, you know, first inning, I look back at that first inning and glad, glad to get that dribble, of course, and where was it? Sinker out there, and I was like, okay, here we go. But then I thought David Schneider missed a couple of pitches, and you, you don't see him. You know, I think he took one, and then he, he flied out on a fastball right down the middle. So he, he missed it, and that happens. But then it, it just started going, and there's Kirk with that sinker away, double play ball, uh, with a couple of times, balls away. George, sinker away on that one strikeout. He just it looked half-hearted. I mean, just it kept happening. And I, I try to pick things because I, I, my idea, and again, I take 10 or 15 minutes to that. I got to believe these hitters and, and coaches, what they're doing is prepping for a starting pitcher in that same way, but times a thousand, right? They've got all kinds of information on what they're going to do to you. So that's what's a little befuddling to me where if I kind of know what the game plan is and it's another thing to also know the game plan, but then execute it and, counter him and what are you going to do whether you're going to stay on the ball do you you get closer to the plate do you just but your mindset has to be out there yet still see a lot of the same approaches same swing so I I don't know if there's just not an adjustment because I think you do have to I'm not saying you change your swing every night based on the starting pitcher but your your mental approach when you get in the box has to be something like I look at like a Bobichet and I know he's extreme because he's so darn good and he didn't get a hit last night but every time he steps in the batter's box and I don't 
it's not just mechanically what he does so well because that's what makes him such a great hitter. But, man, it just seems to have an idea. And does he get jammed on a fastball sometimes? Sure. But he also looks like he's thinking, what's that guy trying to do to me? And what am I going to try to do to him? And I just, I don't know, I just don't see it in a lot of the other at-bats. And, Joe, you mentioned Vlad's first inning kind of roller uh, of a single. It'll end up as the only hit between those two for the series. So, cool, take it if you can get it, I guess. But that's one where, you know, he lays off the first outside one, and then it gets the 1-1, and then he swings at the same outside one he just laid off of and rolls over it. And then I look ahead at his his fourth inning uh, plate appearance, and he gets up... 3-0 in that one. He thinks he takes ball four. It's over the plate. Okay, whatever. But then the fifth pitch of that one is not only a pitch that he's already laid off of a couple times in that plate appearance, but if you're going to decide, like if you know sinkers and change-ups on the outside edge are, are the game plan and you've just seen a couple and you decide, hey, this one's going to be enough in the zone that I can swing at it. What do we make of the fact that in addition to that that decision that we can disagree with it was a 92 mile an hour fastball that Vlad couldn't really catch up to knowing that it was probably going to be a 92 mile an hour sinker or a change up in that spot well I think first and foremost we all saw the work that he put in earlier mm-hmm. yesterday and bag practice on the field and I had gotten to the ballpark and I saw it too and I'm watching and I said to myself I said to a couple of people that actually I may have said it to you I can't I think remember you did, yeah. but I, I said I'm going to watch his first step back and I am going to pull up the video on my laptop in the first inning and I'm going to look to see if the swing's any different and I didn't see a whole lot different so Physically, I didn't see anything really different. Now, did he do something different? Maybe, and it could have been something small that I didn't pick up, whatever. But, I mean, I was looking for something, whether it was the hand staying high, not dropping. I was looking for maybe, maybe not jumping out. I thought, maybe is he going to just really sit and ride that backside? I'm talking like something extreme. He needs to try something extreme, like really sitting on that back leg and almost thinking launch. I hate that word, but he almost needs to think that way right now because he's diving out and landing so firmly on that front side. Like something drastic had to come out of that and it didn't. So sure enough, he dribbles one past the pitch and I'm like, here we go again. And then you watch the rest of that bat. I'm just not seeing anything different. So I'm not sure how you can put all that in, in a day but not change because I would say, I think most people would agree with me that this is the point. He has hit a point now and it probably actually happened way earlier, but at this point now, if you're going to have a session like that, something like fairly drastic should look different and it didn't. So whatever it was, he could have been working on his shoulder doing so many things that involved in a baseball swing, but I thought I would see something that I would notice to my naked eye that was different. And I didn't. So I'm not sure where he's going with that, but I think in terms of that swing you're referring to, it's a case of everything. It's a case of the mechanics aren't good, the moves aren't good, and now, of course, you've got a guy that's pressing, 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 and what do you do when you do that? You expand and try to do too much. And that's leading off an inning, right? Of all mm-hmm. times, like good Vladdy, he takes that, and it's probably up and away ball four, or he if it did catch the zone, so what? It's three and two now. Like that, that's when he's going good. That's the Vladdy we we know and love, <laughs> and unfortunately, we just haven't seen that in a while. Yeah, and that's I mean that's supposed to be a huge part of being able being such a good hitter is you're comfortable getting to two strikes. It's like okay, yeah. well if you don't give me my pitch, I'll wait for it, and if I got to defend with two strikes, uh, so be it. So we turn the page to tonight with the offense, Joe, and I guess before we get into Nate Valdi a little bit, uh, j- just because this this question's coming in on Twitter and in the text line a little bit. Do you put any stock in the idea of like, Hey, change up the like moves Vlad spot in the batting order, give him a day down. Or do you kind of just have to keep riding this because this team's not going to do much if he doesn't figure it out anyway? 
I would. I, I think we've hit that point. Yeah. I mean, normally you don't. I'm not a fan. If I were, if I'm not a fan of moving guys around and doing things like that. But that that point has come where, I, and I think I said it yesterday. Like, why wouldn't you? Like, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you just shake it up? Why don't you move Schneider up there? Drops Vladdy a little bit, and, and again, not demotion, not punishment, not. Not Benjamin sit, although hey, sometimes a day away can't hurt either. Maybe you just sit on the on the bench for a day and, and watch the game. I've always I've always felt, and I've had other players tell me that, like everyday players when they get a day off. So often you hear that comment. Yeah, it was it was kind of really enlightening to sit back and kind of watch how that pitcher attacked our hitters because you do have a totally different perspective. Maybe it needs one day of that. Uh, I would change things up right now. Why wouldn't you? Like it's 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 that point. I, I don't think you can get to a lower low right now offensively where this club is. So try something and, um, and move guys around. Now we've a guy that he's pretty tough on lefties. And, you know, you think a righty's on the mound, get all the lefties in there, but be careful what you wish for, <laughs> because he's got that, that splitter. He's got the four seamer. He'll run the cutter in on think of like a bar show or a visio, those kinds of guys. So it'll be interesting to see what the lineup is. If he does put all the lefties in there against Evaldi, or do you, you know, you, you ride the other guys. And again, I don't know what the right answer is right now. Obviously you're always thinking about the matchups, but uh, Nathan Evaldi is still Nathan Evaldi, right? Like it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if, if it's loaded with the lefties. Cause I honestly don't think that's uh, you know, for example, I don't think it's a great matchup for Dalton Varshill. Now you could, you could laugh and say nothing is right now, <laughs> but uh, a pretty good fastball guy that runs it in with the splitter and a cutter. That's uh, probably not a good thing for Varshill right now. Yeah. And I, you know, I get asked sometimes about reverse splits guys. And my answer is always, well, I got, I got to see a big sample and I got to see either a splitter or a, or a change up at an elite level to believe that a guy is reverse splits. Well, Evaldi <laughs> has the splitter and he's got four years in a row of, of those reverse splits. So probably uh, believe it there. Also uh, a big ground ball guy as well. So if you're looking at the type of guy who maybe expands the zone and rolls over some, well, he's right near the top of the league in ground ball rate too. So uh, this has not left me more confident. Um, Joe, moving away from, from, you know, the game specific stuff, they have put themselves in a spot here now where they entered this series fully in control. They had a couple games edge. They could have won the tiebreaker against Texas. They could have left this series in a comfortable spot. Now, I know you were kicking around a little bit on Blue Jays Central last night. Your record, you are what your record says you are at this point in the season. And the Jays record says they're a borderline playoff team, which isn't the end of the world. But the expectation was to win a division this year, not just sneak in the playoffs. Uh, I also wonder when 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 we talk about something like your record is, you're, you are what your record says you are. When we dig in and the Jays are eight games under 500 against winning teams or they're 11 games under 500 against the teams currently in AL playoff spots, do you think that tells us as much or more than the overall record? I think it can because, I mean, I wouldn't um, think of the stretch that they just finished, you know, those 15 games, and they went 10-5 and five and they averaged six runs a game. I mean, I hope we all kind of expected that, right? Mm-hmm. We had expected a pretty good run, and I felt before that stretch, and I said the bats are going to heat up, and we're going to get all excited, but then things get real when Texas comes to town, <laughs> and things have gotten real. Because when you're facing better teams, now that doesn't mean in a small sample, I mean, look what they did against the Atlanta Braves. You can beat good teams. They played well against Houston. I mean, those things can happen, but when you take this big old sample of a, of a season, and I mean, Texas Rangers, right? They're a very good hitting team, but we look at the pitching. They've certainly had their issues with their bullpen all season long, but they come in here and it's like now these relievers are, are, are looking 
pretty decent. And again, I think as hitters, we're so close. I'm so close to watching the Blue Jays every single day, watching these hitters. I think I have a pretty good pulse on all of these hitters. I think I know if I was catching how I would attack them. And it, like Jordan Montgomery last night, it just it looked too easy. And I remember saying this at times last year, too, because remember the whole right-handed hitting lineup and yeah. just stay away, slide sinkers in, sliders away, and we see it time and time again. But I, I think the better teams you play generally have not just better pitchers, and better pitchers have better stuff, and better pitchers with better stuff can execute better, but the game plans are also very good. And, I mean, look no further than what they were doing to Vladdy with all those breaking balls early. And, again, picking on Vladdy because he's a really struggling hitter right now. But I think each hitter, every hitter has a weakness, but it's a matter of where can you go to avoid damage, attack that weakness, but execute those pitches. And it just seems like the better teams can do that more effectively. And this Blue Jays lineup has been very susceptible in that regard. And I think that is a big part of not playing as well against the good teams. And Joe, just because we, we won't get a chance to talk to you again before the, these next couple sets of games, when you talk about good teams, um, you know, I know you, you always point out, hey, st- strength of schedule is, is dynamic, right? You catch teams at better times than worse mm-hmm. times, and you got to be playing good ball. Um, you, I, I know people might look at the 15 games ahead after this series and say, well, nine of those are against non-playoff teams in the Red Sox and Yankees. I don't know how much you've gotten to see, to, see of them, but they're playing – they, they're at least still playing hard. And I think both of those teams really want to finish over 500. And, and like, I, I don't, I don't know how you feel, but I don't think we can look at those and be like, okay, non-playoff teams. That's a bit of a let up in the schedule. I think those teams would probably love to knock, help knock the blue Jays out of a playoff spot. Yeah. I almost like to look at it as a, at least and the conversation changes, of course, because I you know what the blue Jays fortunes have been like against the AL East, like it's the Red Sox and Yankees. And yes, I know they're not going to the playoffs, but yeah, the Yankees aren't coming in or sorry, the Red Sox aren't coming in this weekend to roll over. Are you kidding me? You're right. They always want to beat the blue Jays. Of course they do. Just like the blue Jays always want to beat the Red Sox, right? Those are those in division rivalries, but yes, they mean a lot more now. And the Yankees, of course, the way their season has gone and fallen apart, but you know, I haven't followed them too closely lately since they've fallen out, but I understand, right? Some of these veteran guys are out now and they've brought up some kids. Well, nothing like playing a bunch of kids that are <laughs> trying to prove something right in September to their manager in front office to fight for jobs next year. So yeah, it's, I don't think anything's going, anything's going to be easy down the stretch, but more importantly than anything, it's taking care of your own garden. And that to me is a lot now. I was going to say that to me has a lot to do with the Blue Jays offense, but now we've seen what's happened to the pitching over the last couple of days too. I mean, that's, that's the part we didn't really account mm-hmm. for, right? All we've been talking about these last few weeks is that the offense has to get going. The offense has to get going because the pitching's so good. But now all of a sudden, the bullpen's leaking, taking on lots of water. And the, and the starters with Kikuchi there last night, it's like, uh-oh. That's not the thing we were anticipating. So you, you just have to take care of your, your own stuff. And the pitchers have to do their job. Hitters have to do their job. But that's what right, winning streaks are made of everything firing on all cylinders. Good pitching, you know, good bullpen, good hitting. And then losing streaks are the opposite. Well, that middling thing they've been doing all year is what they are, right? They just haven't really synced up both of those at the same time. And obviously a lot of that blame has to go to the lineup. Yeah, certainly. Um, so just on, on the pitching note, before I let you go here, Joe, uh, Chris yeah. Black always wants to come on with you whenever I have you on. So I will at least ask you a Chris Black question. He tweeted out <laughs> earlier this morning that Kevin Gosman against the bottom 20 offenses in the league has a 237 
ERA, and the Jays are 12 and four in those games. When Gosman faces a top 10 offense, the ERA almost doubles to 459. Jays are three and nine. The Rangers, of course, despite their struggles, preventing runs are the number three offense in baseball. Does that kind of split worry you at this point in the season that, that we've got a, a little bit of a sample here? Obviously, Look, good teams are going to score more. That that's pretty straightforward. Yeah. That's how they become good teams. But with Gosman, it's a it looks like a pretty extreme split based on that stat that Chris tweeted out. Yeah, that is concerning to be honest with you because Kevin is is so good with the two pitches that he uses predominantly that you can see how lesser teams offensively challenged clubs can bite right into that, right? And be chasing the splitter down and not handle the fastball up. And you can see how he can almost dominate those kind of weaker type lineups, maybe some younger type lineups that are eager and aggressive with their approaches. And then you get more of a veteran type, or or let's just call it a better offense, better quality, like the Texas Rangers that we'll see what their approach is, but they're probably going to have a better game plan and a better approach against a better pitcher, right? And that's what makes life more difficult. And that's why it's such a challenge for a pitcher and catcher to play that chess game. I mean, Simeon's going to start the game off and he's going to be like probably hacking, right? (laughs) I mean, be ready for that first pitch. I certainly wouldn't be flipping his slider in their first pitch, but these guys are going to have good approaches against the Kevin Gosman. And you don't necessarily know that until the game starts. Like I, I, if I'm catching tonight, I'm not sure what their approach is going to be to Kevin. Are they going to be thinking splitter, making that splitter be up, or are they going to be laying off that fastball that's up in the zone? So it takes that first not even first time through the lineup, but those first several hitters to feel maybe how they're approaching it. But the bottom line is the better teams have better hitters and they generally have better approaches. And that's challenging for any pitcher, regardless of who you are, even if it's a really good one in Kevin. Yeah. I don't know how anyone pitches to Corey Seager right now. So good luck mm-hmm. to, uh, to Kevin Gosman, uh, Joe Siddle. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. Uh, enjoy the game later. Hopefully it's, it's a more enjoyable one than the last couple. <laughs> It can only get better, Blake. Have a great day, man. Joe Siddle of Sportsnet of Blue Jays Central. I would quibble with the it can only get better part because uh, it can always get worse, especially while there are still games on the schedule. By the way, having lost these three in a row, Blue Jays have gone from uh, being a game and a half up in the playoffs and having per fan graphs, 79.2% chance of making the postseason. Uh, Three games later, they are a game out of the playoffs, a game behind Seattle, a game and a half behind Texas. If Houston were to fall down, they're two and a half back of them. Those playoff odds have shrunk from 79.2% to 46.2%. So in three games, you've lost about a third of a chance of making the playoffs. It's not great. Uh, If you lose tonight, that's going to get even worse. And then, of course, there's the element where you've already lost the tiebreaker to Texas. You will lose. You split the series with Seattle, but you lose the secondary tiebreaker to Seattle. You do have it against Houston, but um, basically where we're at right now, and Ben Nicholson Smith contextualized this well, I think, is that Texas and Seattle are at 81 wins, so they need nine wins to get the 90 wins. We've used 90 wins as our rough cutoff for the final wild card spot uh, for the better part of the last month or so. Um, if the Jays. The Jays can no longer aim for 90 wins because they've lost the tiebreaker to those teams. They have to aim for 91. So if Texas and Seattle both win nine games the rest of the way, the Jays have to win 11. Uh, The Jays only have 16 games left. Uh, Yes, Seattle and Texas play against each other seven times down the stretch here. There are also series against Houston mixed in there. Some of these teams are going to beat each other 
But what could actually be, be bad for the Blue Jays is if they keep kind of just humming along as they have and those teams all go 500-ish against each other, well, the Jays then have to make up ground uh, in that way. The, the best thing you're rooting for, whichever team you pick, is you want one of those teams to do really, really poorly. Uh, these are not the scenarios you want to be in. And, you know, a part of Bendicles and Smith and I joked around about it uh, after that Angels-Mariners game on Monday. Like, you have gone from controlling your own fate to being in a bad spot, a spot where you could still very well make the playoffs. You still have 16 games left. You're only a game out. This is not anywhere near a mathematical impossibility, but not only have you raised the bar for the type of baseball you have to play from here, but you've also left yourself where you're not just scoreboard watching, you're scoreboard finger crossing. You got to hope Randall Gritchick can get that hit off of Trent Thornton. You got to hope... Aaron Loop can shut down Teoscar Hernandez. Like these are the scenarios you've put yourself in for the last couple of weeks. Instead of being in a position where you can just focus on your baseball and play good baseball and win enough games. Uh, yeah, you could go like 16 and 0 over these last 16 and then you're, you're almost certainly fine, but I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, and I think that, yeah, they've just in a season of missed opportunities, they have continued to squander them. And this series might be chief among those. Uh, Kevin Gosman will try to get it going tonight against Nate Ivaldi, and then they'll play uh, Boston for three. That rotation, by the way, setting up Brios Bassett and a TBD that'll probably be Ryu and then TBD Chris Sale TBD. Uh, so we'll see on the Boston side, probably Brian Bayo on the Friday, the way it lines up. He's a lot of fun. Uh, so that's what you're looking ahead to. But right now, your playoff odds, I said it, they've dropped from 79% entering this series to 46% now. If you don't like that, well, we'll take it up with Dan Zimborski, who uh, is the creator of Zips, the guy who manages Zips over at Fangraphs. Those feed into some of those playoff projections. We'll see what Dan thinks of some of these wild card races, what those playoff odds look like. He's also done some stuff on, hey, you're tired, surely, of hearing that Vlad hits the ball X amount of well and his stats should turn around this year. I think we're, we're all past that point for right now but do those underlying stats have any predictive value for next year what are we feeling about for where vlad and some of these other guys are at for 2024 also some uh some fun davis schneider stuff to do with dan zimborski because yeah things have been bad and he went oh for yesterday but uh if there's one positive left right now it's uh it's davis schneider dan zimborski next on jay's talk plus on the sports at radio network and sports at 360 Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, Toronto Blue Jays losing uh, another real bad one. Smaller crowd. That crowd booed. They were just not very good. 10 to nothing. They've now lost three in a row to Texas. They've only scored 24 runs over their last seven games, uh, including some games against not good pitching staffs. It uh, it feels a little dire right now. As I mentioned before the break, the playoff odds have swung from a nice, robust 79.2%. So about a four and five chance of getting in at the start of this series to now just a little south of 50-50 at 46.2%. You could blame the Toronto Blue Jays for that, for losing these last three games. Or you could blame Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs because uh, he has some input into those playoff odds. And I'd imagine he's just doing this out of a a personal gripe here. Dan, good morning. How you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm doing well. It, It is a gripe. I'm still mad about the 1989 divisional race. 
Yeah, that's uh, it's obvious <laughs> when we look at these projection systems. Um, man, I, I know this time of year, like the the playoff odds are going to swing game by game. Um, you, as someone who handles zips and works at FanGraphs and stuff, of course, uh, how much of a kick do you get out of uh, the the swings right now? And I'd imagine a huge uptick in traffic and how often people are are referencing these things. It, it, it certainly makes the, the the probabilities much swingier this time of year. Yes. Uh, I usually use the analogy of if you're watching like the World Series of Poker and people have pushed in all their chips and you see the cards come one by one and the and the numbers the percentages change wildly depending on whether you know someone gets their their pair or someone gets the their fourth card for their flush. Those those odds are very swingy because. Every game at this point is just massive. Uh, so to have a run like the Jays did is, let's just say it's not ideal. It's certainly uh, it's certainly not. They are on the outside looking in right now. They're a game back of Seattle, a game and a half back of Texas. Uh, Houston's kind of in that mix as well since they're only a game up in the American League West. And if we look at these odds right now, you know, there, there are small percentage chances that someone else could still do something. But for the most part, that's our field here. Rays and Orioles and, and Twins are almost surely in. And then those remaining four teams jockeying for three spots. The Jays are at the bottom of that right now, but Dan, they have a game against the Rangers ahead. Um, Texas and Seattle play each other a bunch down the stretch. What is, you know, it, this doesn't have to be analysis. This could be your, your read as a baseball fan and sizing these teams up. Uh, what do you make of these last two and a half weeks here where, yeah, the AL West are playing each other so much and how that maybe hurts or helps the Blue Jays chances. Uh, it's certainly helpful, uh, but the Blue Jays have their own schedule problem in that they don't really play any of the doormat teams uh, for the rest of the season. There are no more Royals games, no more A's games. The, the, the games they play the rest of the year are all against teams either around 500 or better. And you know the Red Sox and Yankees have, even if they're out of the playoffs, which they appear to be by a good margin, they certainly have, you know, motivation to not finish below 500. Uh, the Yankees aren't playing for the playoffs, but to be a Yankee team that's below 500 is kind of embarrassing. Uh, and they certainly would like to win some games on the backs of the, one of their divisional rivals. So it's not going to be easy for the Jays, but it's, it is good that the NL West will be beating up on each other to an extent. So, I mean, the AL West. So let's spin it and take a look at that NL West wildcard race because – that is a ton of fun right now as well. And this is a Jays show, but it's also an MLB show. And it's pretty fascinating over in the NL where Philly and the Cubs are starting to look a little bit comfortable, but not super comfortable. And then Arizona, Cincinnati, Miami, San Fran, all within half a game of each other for the final wild card spot. Um, Dan, I mean, we talk like, look, sometimes baseball is going to feel like weighted coin flips. It really four teams almost tied for one spot. It really does feel like it's just going to be, uh, I don't know, I guess coin flip doesn't work for 14, like a, a giant rock, paper, scissors tournament down the stretch here. Uh, a, 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 a quadrahedron coin. If, there you go. If there is such a thing. <laughs> you can you can flip that. Uh, no, close races are fun, especially because baseball's kind of ruined our fun with those play-in games. Uh, no more game one sixty threes. So we might see some of these wild card spots settled by tiebreakers, which doesn't feel great. So I'm hoping that it's a clearer result uh, in the end. But uh, I mean. I still have the Padres with a one in a thousand chance. <laughs> that would be fun. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. There, there's that 
unlikely scenario and then we you know we get a four-way tie for the final spot and we i haven't even looked up what the four team tiebreakers are and things like that oh, it could uh yeah, i, I hope sure. <laughs> yeah i hope your formulas and tiebreakers in the fan graphs odds are, are set there uh, when you look at these teams and let's look it's not a, a sure thing that philly and chicago are, are going to get in but they've got a tiny bit of a cushion and they've looked last two games aside a, a little bit better when you size up arizona cincy miami san fran uh do you like one of those teams better than the other they're, they're all hanging in here four or five games above 500 despite all of them having negative run differentials it's a it's a weird race to size up numbers or otherwise uh, I, I think I like the Giants uh, a little more. Uh, I think they're one of the more stable teams when you look at the rotation depth. I think Logan Webb has had a terrific season. Uh, they've had some pretty solid offensive performances from top to bottom uh, from players you might not necessarily expect it coming into the season. Uh, Patrick Bailey, I mean, is has a good chance of making my, uh, my uh, rookie of the year ballot. Uh, not to spoil anything, but he's back. <laughs> from the concussion list, he's healthier. Uh, I, I think they have a solid chance. But you look at any of the teams that are at the edge of the NL wildcard race, and they're all roughly similar in quality. Maybe the Phillies are a little bit ahead, but they're also a little bit ahead in the in the race. Uh, but there, it, I, it's anyone could win, and, and none of the results would surprise me at this point. Hmm. Are you um, obviously with the guardians, it was a long shot that any of the waiver ads would make much of a difference. Uh, Cincinnati grabbed a couple guys as well for all that we made of the waiver process and how weird and and kind of funny it was. And then, you know, the kind of eye roll at the angels side of it. Are you surprised that it hasn't seemed to make a ton of difference? Like none of these guys have really hit the ground running or or played particularly well since landing in their new spots. Uh, Well, when when the when the waiver when the waiver uh, moves happen when the angels kind of put everybody on and then some other teams join them, none of the players really projected uh, a, a, except uh, a Giolito possibly mm-hmm. as being a real difference maker. And the problem with the Guardians is it was an issue of too little, too late. Yeah, they needed to do something to catch the Twins, but they needed to do something to catch the Twins back at the end of July uh, when you wait. You know, to do your term paper until it's due in an hour, there's only so much you can really do to make that a good paper. At that point, you're just trying to not get a zero. Uh, you you look at the players involved, and most of them are more recognizable names than difference makers. Uh, like I think Randall Gritchick. Yeah, people know his name. He has a, he has a 30 home run season in his history, but he's not someone who you add to the team and expect to to move the standings similarly. Uh, and you can say that about most of the players acquired. And naturally, in the end, they didn't move the needles uh, significantly. Those are the stars, and the stars were not generally on the waiver wire at this point of the season. Which is uh, which is unfortunate, you know, especially like the uh, it's a it's such a secret waiver process that, you know, one day you look up and it's like, oh, Shohei's a, a Blue Jay for the rest of the season. That would have been that would have been really nice. And the, the <laughs> Angels could have ducked the tax and all that stuff. Uh, as it is, the Blue Jays will have to hope that their own stars start playing a little better to, to pull this off here. And Dan, I pivot back to the Jays because you had a piece a couple weeks ago before you went on vacation about hitter X stats. So these stats that we have underlying, let's say this is what we'd expect in a context 
context neutral environment or, or without luck, without the stuff that we can't measure yet, like, you know, who knows, spin rate and things like that. Um, and people at this point in the season, we're 150 games in or so, people are tired of hearing the, well, Vlad's expected stats are better than his actual, and that says X, Y, and Z. Also, Vlad's expected stats have come down as this slump has, has uh, rolled on, so that's not even, you know, keeping people warm anyway if they if they are buying into that. Um, but I'm curious, Dan, you, you wrote this piece, and it was more focused on, okay, like we're out of time for things to regress to the mean in 2023, but how do underlying stats like that help us level set for future years? And I'm not, I'm not trying to turn the page on the 2023 Blue Jays just yet, but since we have you on, how does uh, an odd season like this where, you know, we'll use Vlad as the example, the, the surface level results are not very good and they're a big drop off. The expected results are still not, unbelievably encouraging, but they're certainly better than the actual results. How do those things work in tandem for projecting ahead? Well, when you're projecting ahead, uh, you kind of have to get your head around the idea. Uh, and it, it can be a little difficult philosophically for people to, to really feel uh, is that the, the performance record for any player is an imperfect reflection of that player's abilities. Obviously, you know, a guy hitting 60 home runs, he's a good home run hitter or something. But these stats generally get to the reasons behind the events. Uh, you can project a player's home runs from home runs and still do a pretty good job. But kind of the, the holy grail is to get these things down to like the, the elemental level where you're looking at the more stable reasons why home runs are hit, not just the home runs themselves when you're seeing the cause, not the result. And that does tend to, you know, shade our projections in the right range. Uh, everybody who does projections uses that to some degree. Uh, so, I mean, there's still hope for uh, uh, Guerrero long-term. Uh, now the fact is, as you know, his expected numbers have declined. So even if you can say he's underperforming and we expect better from him for five months or four months, uh, the last month, month and a half so far, it's it's not really the same. He really is playing poorly, uh, and we just have to kind of figure that out. Uh, luckily, I don't have to figure that out. That that seems like quite the challenge. But these numbers, even if they're not perfect, and certainly they're not, they do give us a guide to understanding like why pictures walk batters uh, at the major league level. It's not just because you have poor control. Uh, that's kind of a, a little league high school thing. Uh, because all pitchers can throw the, the, the ball over the plate if they have to, but the problem is against major leaguers, you don't necessarily want to. So things like getting ahead in the count are huge and are giant leading indicators of where a pitcher's walk rate is going. If you see a pitcher with a high walk rate, but he's getting to a lot of zero one counts, you can expect that walk rate to improve over time, even if that's not necessarily the number that people most jump to when they look at, at things like walk rate. So these numbers do help us predict the future. So I am, I'm curious if you have it offhand. I, I know, you know, at the start of each season, you do a three year zips projection. Um, do you, do you update those future projections fairly regularly? Like if I asked you what Vlad's 2024 projection looks like right now, do you have that handy or is that an unfair question to ask? Well, I mean, it's always a fair question to ask. I do, uh, I do do a full run of zips uh, in in the middle of every month. Okay. Uh, we also have the, the we 
we have the simple simple in season on, on Fangraphs because yeah. that's a model that can be run every day. Uh, but one of the problems with running like full zips every day is that it takes more than twenty four hours to do a full <laughs> run of zips over two computers. It takes me about thirty six hours uh, using multiple computers, including my main rig, so I can't play any games uh, to 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 uh, uh, get that. But I do have. Uh, the most recent one, I actually have already run the September ones, and uh, Zips has uh, Guerrero down to a 2.9 war season in uh, 2024, and that's kind of its lowest it's projected for him so far. So it's still projecting to be above average player, and I think people forget that he's still very young. It feels like he's been around forever at this point, but we're we're still talking about a guy who turned 24 this season. Uh, a lot of hitters are still, you know, trying to break into the majors at that age. So there is still upside left, even if it feels a little foggy right now. And for anyone who who hears that, hey, three, 2.9 wins above replacement, that seems a little high coming off of a year in which he's been, you know, worth less than half a, a win above replacement so far. Well, the initial three-year projection had Vlad at 3.8 wins above replacement last year. So already this year... To, to put in context, has changed his projection for the future by about a win a season, which is a, a pretty notable drop-off when you're talking about a, a young kind of cornerstone of your franchise. Now, for the Vlad negativity, Dan, there has been some positivity on the Blue Jays' offense side as well. It's come in the form of, of Davis Schneider, who's off to one of the best starts in Major League history. He had a, an O for yesterday, but still an OPS up north of 1.2 here in his first 26 games. Um, obviously, you know, things like OPS, isolated slugging, those things will need more time before those stats start to stabilize. But when you talk about X stats or batted ball stats that are underlying, how quickly does Zips adjust for a guy like that who I know you were already, the model was already high on David Schneider, and now you've got a 100 plate appearance sample saying, hey, you know what, this is, uh, this is pretty legit at the major league level, at least in a small window. Uh, these numbers tend to stabilize pretty quickly. It's hard to have kind of fluke exit velocity or fluke contact rates in the same way uh, because, you know, when you're hitting a ball, the, the feelers have a lot to do with exactly where you hit the ball. Uh, unless you're Tony Gwynn, there's a lot of <laughs> fortune about where the ball ends up. But uh, Schneider, uh, you look at where he's gone since the start of the season, and his numbers have gone up just quite a bit. I mean, Zips was not sour on him at all coming into the season. Uh, it had him as 1.6 war uh, in just like about 400 plate appearances, which already made him a league average player in the projections at the start of the season uh, and saw him as roughly league average in 2024. But now he's verging on being a three-win player in the projections. Hmm. Uh, the projected OPS plus is up to 110. Uh the projected OPS is over 750 now, uh, and it's it's even projecting him as a left fielder instead of an infielder, which does sag your value a bit. So there are a lot of reasons to like him, uh, and I'm and I'm really bitter. My colleague Ben Clemens <laughs> uh, got the uh, Schneiderverse pun for uh, the article on on him. I love that pun. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, that's unfortunate that he he took that one from you uh, into the Schneider versus the piece over at Fangraphs. Uh, Dan, before I let you go here, you and I have talked before and try to contextualize for people. Yeah, when you look at minor league stats, you have to control for a bunch of factors, age at the level, each league kind of having its own offensive environment. Everyone knows the PCL has inflated home runs forever. Uh, when you see, though, that the AAA International League 
as of last Tuesday, has changed the rules mid-season. Uh, how much does that disrupt you from uh, projecting from AAA standpoint? It's it's harder in season uh, than season to season because then I can adjust to the general level of play. But it is frustrating. <laughs> and it should be frustrating for anyone, even beyond a projection person, because it, it it's kind of weird when the rules change midway through. Imagine doing that, playing a game of Monopoly. Like... Imagine you're not doing free parking when you get to $500 (laughs) and someone lands on the free parking space and says, okay, for now on free parking, you get $500. Uh, You'd be, you'd be furious. You'd, you'd flip over the board. There'd be hotels and houses everywhere and symbols, you know, across the room, uh, top hats. It it would be, it would be a, 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 a brutal monopoly mess if, if you did that, but they do that in baseball. And I'm glad that they're not changing the pitch clock rules for the playoffs because that just seems super weird. Okay. Okay. Everyone. Okay. Let's just do this all differently now. Now that it's the playoffs. Ugh. Yeah, it's a tough one. And your Monopoly example, I mean, hey, that exact scenario led to a huge fight between Tony Soprano and Bobby <laughs> B- Bacalieri. So, uh, yeah, pretty pretty testy there. And then on top of, you know, they use a different rule set Tuesday to Thursday than they do Friday to Sunday. Uh, it's uh, I don't envy you trying to translate these uh, these stats ahead, but I do appreciate you taking the time out this morning, Dan. Thanks so much. Always fun. Thanks for having me. Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs. Uh, make sure you're checking out Fangraphs I mean, every day for all the great content. He mentioned the Ben Clemens piece into the Schneiderverse, which was a, a really good look at him. Mike Petriello also had a really good piece on Davis Schneider uh, up at MLB.com. We're going to have Mike Petriello on around 1130 to discuss that and kind of whip around uh, all of baseball. There's also some interesting Ranger stuff, and it's... It sucks right now to kind of look across the the diamond and be like, man, there's some good stuff going on there, especially given what's happened with them lately. But in addition to Corey Seager, you know, John Schneider said yesterday before the game when, when we were speaking to him that he he's arguably the best hitter in baseball right now. I think Jonah Heim is like arguably the best defensive catcher in baseball right now too. Uh, and then, yeah, they're, uh, they're pitching, turning around because the Blue Jays offense has been like, here, turn it around. Why wouldn't you? Uh, by the way, small update uh, from this series. Max Scherzer done for the season and the play uh, return of the playoffs per our pal Kennedy Landry, who was on the show earlier in the week. Uh, return to the playoffs unlikely as well. So that sucks to see for Max Scherzer. Maybe if you're a Blue Jay fan, uh, it helps a little bit with your projection forward, but that's obviously not how anyone wants to uh, make the playoffs or think about these last couple weeks. So uh, that part sucks. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Arden Zwelling will join us. We'll tee up tonight's series finale between Kevin Gosman and Nate Valdi, where the Jays are just trying to salvage a game, not try to salvage a split, not trying to accomplish the sweep. They're just trying to avoid being swept. It's not where the bar was entering this series. That's kind of par for the season so far. Arden Zwelling joins us next. Mike Petriel at 1130 as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jays lose again last night. It has been a rough three games. Normally when Arden Zwelling joins us, we're being pretty reasonable about things, you know, taking the the long view and things like that. But Arden Zwelling of Sportsnet, of Sportsnet.ca, 
Are even you giving in a little bit after the last couple of days to man, they're they're running out of time and they're they're really they're really showing us something here these last couple of days. What do you think? I think you're still going to be on the more reasonable. There are 15 or 16 games left and you are mostly in control, but uh, have you, I guess some of the things that we've leaned on for optimism, that things will be better have started to erode a little bit though. I'm a little unemotional just in life, sometimes to a fault. That's surprising to hear. I, uh, the way I look at it, you got 16 left. You want to win 90. So go 10 and six. You probably have to win 91 now though. Why, uh, well, you, you lost the tiebreaker to Texas and you don't have the tiebreaker against Seattle. But one um, of those two teams wins 89 and you win 90, you're in. Sure. But they also only have to win nine to get the nine. Like they have to go nine and eight and nine and seven, I think, the rest they of the way. They play each other seven times. So four and three in those. There's seven losses in there. Like it's baseball, man. Yeah. We're three days removed from Kevin Kiermeyer doing like his Howard Dean thing. Yeah. And we're going to Iowa and going nuts. Right. And everybody is, yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> on the high of all highs. So it's just, we've seen this, like these swings can be so dramatic late in the season. And when the sample is this small and you got three teams competing for two spots and they're separated by a game and a half, there's a lot of potential outcomes. And one of those potential outcomes is the blue Jays go like five and 11. That's 16 left, yeah. right? Yeah. Say so they could go five and 11 and completely fall out of it. And the final week of games at Rogers center could be incredibly grim. Or what I think is the most likely scenario is that these three games continue chugging along the way that they have. And we go into the final weekend of the season with the three of them huddled around those two spots separated by probably only a game or two. Which is the most entertaining outcome for watching a lot of baseball day to day. what baseball wants. Yeah. That's why it's, MLB uh, designed it this way. It's just so it the, would play out like this. It's just a little tough when the expectations uh, were very different. And there have been, you know, certainly opportunities to control your fate a little bit more, right? Part of why there was optimism heading into this series. I don't know that anyone was, you know, super celebrating having swept the Royals in three games that were... I don't know, not tremendously good games, but you had at least put yourself in a position where you controlled everything. You could win the tiebreaker against Texas still. You could take, uh, you could create a little bit more cushion in the standings and, you know, everything you did, you were in control of yourself. Now you're looking a little bit at like, well, the, who do those seven losses go to down the stretch? Can the Angels beat a team? Whatever. You, you've lost a semblance of control. Um, but I guess where I'm most curious about if you're, if that kind of faith in the mean, so to speak, has changed at all is that some of the underlying things that have lent confidence that this offense will eventually be better or whatever, Vlad will turn it around, et cetera. Some of those things have gotten worse. Like they, they have almost all of their offensive indicators over the last six weeks or so, with the exception of, of, you know, Springer and Schneider really have gone in the wrong direction. Um, I know still a lot can happen over 16 games, but I guess big picture has your, the level we level set to has that shifted? Like the mean you would expect them to regress to if the sample were still 160 games, has that shifted at all? Have you, you lost a little of the confidence that they are a very good team underneath? Well, yeah, coming into the season, I thought they were going to contend for an AL East crown. That was the goal. That they, is they more or less said it. <laughs> not going to happen. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty clear now that they aren't like a great team. They're a good team. Good teams can do well in the postseason tournament, but you got to get into the tournament, and they are not currently in tournament position. So that is the goal right now: <laughs> is get into the tournament at all costs. And then 
we can look back on this season and think about what went wrong and where the power went, like why they don't have a 25 home run hitter and, you know, why they weren't able to produce better with runners in scoring position over the first four, um, you know, months of the season. But like a lot of this stuff fluctuates and changes game to game. Sunday, I thought Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had like the best approach of anybody against Cole Raggins. First AB, like eight pitches and hits a line drive. Second AB walks against him. And Raggins was like dealing of all dealing that day until he wasn't in a very dramatic way at the end. But up until that point, like throwing elite stuff, five different pitches for strikes, different sequences for lefties and righties, turning a lineup over a third tr- time. And you're thinking, yeah, this guy can get through a mm-hmm. lineup a third time pretty easily with the way that he's throwing. I thought Vlad had great plate appearances that day. And then in this series against Texas, we've seen some absolutely shocking plate appearances. Like we've seen some oo fastballs over the plate taken for called strikes. We've seen one hung cookies that have been, you know, laid on and fouled off. And then we've seen like one, two sliders ball to ball in the opposite batter's box waved at off balance one handed. And then yesterday, a 3 0 fastball that he lay, a 3 0 sinker that he lays off and thought he had ball four. And then he gets the next one and it's a, the same pitch and he's laid on it and just pops it up and probably would have been ball four. And he's heading to first base on the ball that he thought was ball four on a pitch that caught plenty of plate, mm-hmm. right? So, like, he's, I've just, Vlad is as out of sorts as I've seen him over these last three games. But if you go back to Sunday, I would have said, wow, he had a great plan and approach against Cole Raggins. He was as good as anyone against a guy who was absolutely dominant. It's uh, it's tough to figure. He's been particularly tough to figure this year, uh, obviously. When, when you see something like him doing the kind of 40, 45-minute marathon batting practice yesterday, um, you know, I talked to Joe Siddle a little bit about it, and Joe kind of took some of the, the recent plate appearances and then yesterday's and, and looked and was like, well, he wasn't working on anything mechanically necessarily. Like, the the stuff looks the same. What do you what do you make of that? Is that a mental, like, you got to start getting back to seeing the ball come off your bat well and, and you're just trying to get extra reps in or guy trying to swing through it the way it was described to me is he's he's searching for a feeling and i think it's just like a groove and a connectedness at the plate and when you talk to people about what's going on with his swing people who know way more about swing mechanics than i ever will they talk about connectedness and they talk about being out of sync and they talk about the hands coming down and lunging and the bottom half being too quick or the top half being too slow and things just not being synced up. So I think he was looking for that feeling. And I think that in between a lot of his swings, talking to John Schneider and Guillermo Martinez, I know they were talking about mindset and they were talking about approach. And they were talking about what you are thinking about at the plate and what your plan is and what your mindset is in a plate appearance. I think that Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has been pressing in this series He's admitted to doing this at times in his career. We've heard John Schneider talk about him doing it at times this season. I think that that could be the difference between the guy we saw against Cole Raggins on Sunday in a game against Kansas City when you're winning and things are going well versus the guy in the really big series where offense has been hard to come by and the pitching hasn't been spectacular and you need to be a run producer and to score, uh, put some runs on the board trying to do a little bit too much and coming out of your approach. So I think it comes back to a lot of the mindset, the the plan, and, and just the feel at the plate. He's clearly searching for something. Do you subscribe to the idea at all of 
dropping them in the order, giving them an off day to, to clear the head and, and shake it off? Or is this, you know, you only got 16 left. It, it's too, I go back and forth on it. I, I was a little surprised. Joe said he, he thought, yeah, drop them or, or give them a day off at, at this point. But it's tough when you only have 16 games left. Do you want, you know, the guy who's supposed to be your best hitter in there as well? Yeah. I mean, what's the reason, right? Like, what do you think that's, what outcome are you chasing with that? Like, do you think that's going to produce? Um, I guess a clear right? your head day, but yeah, there's also the potential yeah. that it just makes it worse because, oh, I got benched and, you know, probably worst case, best case scenario for the team, but worst case scenario for him is he sits down and the, the offense is awesome that day or something like that. Like I do ascribe to overtraining being a thing mm-hmm. and particularly at this point in the season where Vladimir Guerrero Jr., a guy who posts for four straight seasons, right? Like the shortened season, 60 games yep. and then the following to 160 plus this year on track for high 150s, like a guy who has played as much as he has over the last four to be grinding as much as he is before games with like hour long BP sessions and talk to people around the team. It's like 11 PM, 1130 at night. And he's in the cages after games working and swinging and swinging and swinging. So I do ascribe, and this is just me talking. No Mm -hmm. one's like suggested this to me that this is the issue, but I do personally subscribe to overtraining being a thing. And that at times, like sometimes it's, you know, you you don't need to pound the rock more. (laughs) You want to pound the rock every day, but you know, you you just, just a little bit and then you don't want to break your hand on it, get ready for tomorrow to be at your best. Like it is possible that if you were doing too much away from games, maybe you're not going to be at your best in games because you are devoting so much energy, resources, mentally, physically to the training outside of the actual play on, on the field. So Dwayne Casey, new, new hitting coach for next year, pound the rock. (laughs) Um, Okay. So this, this is not uh, unique to Vlad. Obviously yesterday they had zero runs. They did not put a runner in scoring position the entire game yesterday. And they have only scored 24 runs over their last seven, which covers Kansas city, a bit of Oakland, a Texas team that's been struggling to score runs. And John Schneider kind of has the same answer every time. And it's, well, it's, it's identifying an approach and sticking to it. He's beaten that drum. And I know, that, you know, that's that's the job as a manager is try to keep everyone on point. But do you do you sense uh, any sort of, if not frustration at the inability to stick to the approach that, you know, I guess there's just an incongruence between that message and the approach for an entire season now, really not having delivered a, a ton of results. 100%. After the game, John Schneider didn't come out and say, oh, Jordan Montgomery was really on today. Jordan Montgomery was just so good. Sometimes you got to tip your hat to Jordan Montgomery. He came out and he said, Jordan Montgomery did a good job of locating sinkers and change-ups down and away. And we which, didn't make which the Which we knew coming in was we the book. We didn't make yeah. the adjustment. Yeah, you and I could have looked at that on Savant yeah. and been like, this is what this guy's going to do, right? Yeah, so, watch his last couple starts. I think when John Schneider says we didn't make the adjustment, I mean, that's him saying like, yeah, we didn't do a good enough job against him. So, yeah, I do think that that is him looking internally for what needs to change rather than just saying, yeah, Jordan Montgomery was that good. So you and I have discussed this at at times in the past about, you know, why the Jays seem to do better against the kind of high stuff guys that maybe don't throw as many things, maybe don't, you know, tinker and stick to a game plan as well as just get out there and throw it. And it's, you know, you don't, you can simplify your approach at the plate and look for one thing in one spot or two things in two spots instead of, you know, Montgomery's got primarily three, but sometimes even four pitches that he'll, he'll mix around locations, stuff like that. Um, At this point in the season, would you say, would you be comfortable saying that, you know, part of, if we're evaluating the overall skill set of this team, that 145 146 games in here the ability to adjust on the fly is is not one that this team possesses i think it's kind of to a strong degree anyway it's case by case right like bo bichette's like he can get to anything 
You know, like that's just his swing. Yeah, pro- approach isn't fair with Boba <laughs> I know he had an offer for the series, yeah. but yeah. But I think that, you know, Dolan Varsho, right, is a guy who can, you know, needs a certain pitch in a certain spot and has got to be looking for it. David, David Schneider needs a pitch middle, middle in. And he's been, he gets to them, man. He gets to his mistakes. His approach is pretty sound in that he takes that stuff away. Lowest chase rate in the league is going to help you get some stuff in the zone. Absolutely. And as he's made the adjustment to the fastball up, that's helped him as well. I wonder what's going to happen against really good pitchers who can locate away, like who can paint that outside corner with off speed or with spin. And if he's going to just end up tipping his cap a lot when that happens. So, you know, like it, it's an it's an individual to individual basis, whether you're able to make those adjustments effectively or not. Okay. Uh, so on the pitching side, uh, hitting side, you know, we, we have the same, not the same conversation, but yeah, some of the same stuff's plagued them. The pitching side, they'd been so tremendous all year. They're still very, very good overall. Um, it does look a little bit, and maybe this is, an element of randomness. Maybe this is a little bit of, well, these games haven't been super competitive, but what has been one of the best bullpens in baseball for the season has not looked super great lately. Is that something you chalk up to, you know, the kind of cumulative fatigue of playing so many of these urgent games? What what do you, you know, guys just not as many bullets left. What what do you attribute kind of the, the bullpen skid to? Yeah, that variance, like just, you know, how good they were over the course of the year, expecting them to regress a little bit. Guys having 60, 65, 70 appearances, you know, like Eric Swanson's at a career high. I mean, Trevor Richards. They all are pretty much. Yeah, Trevor Richards has been used a ton, right? And we've seen that, like, he's his fastball command hasn't been quite as precise as it was earlier this year. His changeup hasn't had quite the bite that it did er- earlier this year. I mean, yeah, Jordan Romano, like, he throws really good stuff. But, yeah, if he leaves it in a bad place, they're big league hitters. And yeah. they know that it's going to be either 98-mile-an-hour fastball or a slider, right? And they're really good pitches, but, yeah, you leave that over the plate and the hitter recognizes it quickly, they can they can get into it. So Especially the times that, you know, he still has the the kind of high arm side when the, the command's not on with the fastball. And that yeah. was kind of the, the red flag when the, the back flared up. Relievers are so hard to evaluate. Because yeah. I remember a Romano appearance recently where he came out and he had, like, cut on his fastball. It was like 99 cutting. And I was like, what is that thing? Like, <laughs> and that thing is great. Like that's going to be a huge weapon for him, but it like, it's not always there. Like a lot of relievers don't know what they're going to have until they get on that bullpen mound. And then they're in a game and they're competing. So, so yesterday, uh, Kikuchi gets chased in that one and Bowden Francis comes in and I kind of thought it was going to be the Bowden Francis mop up, eat a couple innings for us here. Uh, try to try to save the pen for another day. Now, admittedly a couple of those guys hadn't pitched a ton lately you probably wanted to get jordan hicks into a game after a couple days down but were you a little surprised that that francis wasn't let to go a a little longer there and and eat some up from yeah part of that could have been that like john schneider's thinking i gotta keep like it's i got 16 games left right like and i need this win so if there's any hope of us coming back in this i don't want this to spiral out and become a, a 10 nothing situation, lo and behold. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's that's probably part of it. Could have been guys, you know, needing work. Yeah. I, I think those things would probably play. Uh, on the Kikuchi side, gives up two home runs yesterday. One of them an absolute monster. Uh, you willing to chalk that up to just one of those days? It, it was a, it, it seemed a little 2022 ish Kikuchi where, you know, the command wasn't kind of spot on and he got a little more, hey, I'll miss middle-middle instead of miss outside. 
too much plate. Yeah. Like you nailed it. Like it was the same thing that we were just saying. Like you, you know, big league hitters, like you leave it over the fat part of the plate. I mean, a lot of them, their approaches, they're locked in on that, especially a lineup like this, right? Yeah, like they're, but, they're good. Yeah. Like they're playing a good team right now. Uh, and yeah, so he just got too much plate. He'd done such a good job of like suppressing hard contact and limiting home runs. He'd allowed only two since the all-star break mm-hmm. entering last night. And then just a few too many pitches over the fat part, and you pay for those against like really good hitters and really powerful lineups like this one. Uh, he didn't hit one of the home runs yesterday, but we talked to John Schneider a little bit about him before the game. Uh, Corey Seager, the level that he's been on, I know that in addition to covering the Jays, you know you have a deep appreciation for the guys who are able to do it at that level and be a guy who, hey, pulls the ball in the air a ton, but also can defend and hit ropes the other way. Um, how impressive has, has Corey Seager been the handful of times you've seen him this year? Oh, 100%. And he dealt with injury stuff earlier this Multiple year times, too, yeah. right? Yeah, like, so, you know, he's probably still feeling some of that stuff and still to perform at that level, right? Like, you look at what Bo Bichette's coming, going through right now, right? Having to take a couple of breaks on the IL from seeing big league pitching. There's an adjustment process when you come back and it takes a little bit of time to regain that comfort level. Corey Seager didn't go through that. Like that's why he's an MVP candidate. Cause he's like, that's why he's like really, really good. <laughs> Cause he's a, you know, it, it does not phase him and he's clearly able to be very productive when he's not feeling his best. Like that's what you see at this time of year in baseball is nobody feels their best. Everyone's banged up. Everyone's tired mentally. Everybody is ride so like the guys that are able to still walk in on an approach and like compete at the highest level and get results like and be productive that's the really in, like impressive performance to me is when you see stuff like that um in terms of, of the il i i know pre-game we had heard from john schneider that chapman was going to do another full day of activity we'd know more after did i miss an update post game do we know the latest on chapman not that i'm no. aware of um i kind of talked to some people before the game and right now the uh kind of debate is whether or not he goes out on a rehab assignment. I think the Blue Jays would prefer that he did just to make sure that everything's Mm a-okay. So wouldn't be surprised if he went out on a very brief, like, game and a half, even, like, rehab assignment. Could start tonight, could start Friday. But the the goal is that he is back this weekend. And I think that is, you know, the expectation is that at some point, Friday is going to be aggressive. But, you know, Mm -hmm. Saturday, Sunday, that he'll, he'll be back to the Blue Jays. They are in Scranton tonight, so not too, too far Away, it's not Buffalo close, but it's not a. Yeah. I don't know. These guys can can hop on a flight. It's not a. <laughs> it's not too uh, too big a deal. Okay, so um, if Chapman returns this weekend, obviously the Brandon Belt injury has resolved some of where the playing time crunch comes down. But John Schneider was asked about it yesterday um, about, you know, do you have to keep Davis Schneider in there every day? They have not played Kevin Biggio every day, but when the matchup makes sense, he's been in there. Um, how do you see that shaking out? I, I guess just in terms of is Chapman and some of this will be, I guess, I guess pain tolerance and stuff, but they've got, as he comes back Saturday. So you've got 14 games left. Is he in there for 14 of them? Or do you have to kind of keep mixing everyone in? I, I know you could with Merrifield or Dalton Varshall could lose playing time as well to kind of keep the, the only bats that have been, been hitting in the lineup. I think Chapman will be in there for 12 with the DH day. Okay. And then a down day where he's not in the lineup. I would think it's something like that. Part of the reason why Kevin Biggio has been as good as he's been for the Blue Jays is that he's been deployed really intelligently. So they've been putting him in really good matches. Uh, yes, the Ross Stripling third time through the order thing is, <laughs> should he go a third time through? Or actually are his numbers so good because he hasn't been allowed to go a third time through? Yeah. A similar kind of... 
kind of thinking. The Blue Jays have found that right balance with him and Santiago Espinal this year. They've just put him in, they put them in good matchups and those guys, to their credit, have embraced the role and have like understood what they need to do in those spots and have performed. So I, yeah, it's, it's, I think they're in good spots right now in terms of their deployment um, with Davis Schneider. Like you, you ride that hot end as long as it stays hot mm-hmm. and we'll, it's like a game to game thing, right? Yeah. Like we'll see how he looks tonight. You it's know? Like- Greatest 25-game start in history <laughs> offensively. We'll see if it's the greatest at the 28-game mark or, yeah. or something like that. Um, Nate Evaldi tonight. Are you doing the game tonight? You're... Uh, no. Okay. Off tonight, doing the games this weekend. Okay. So I won't ask you about Nate Evaldi then because I'm probably going to throw some splitters. Probably going to throw some pretty good four-seamers. Uh, yeah, I was just curious because he he's a guy that I'm... I'm Generally, you got to give me a real good explanation for why a guy's a reverse splits guy, and I need to see some sample. But he's got like four years of reverse splits, and the split finger is probably the explanation. So I was just curious if you thought that, you know, despite him being a righty, this is a day we maybe don't see a ton of the lefties. How long is he going to be in this game is another question. Yeah. Right? Like Four innings was roughly what we heard after the last start, like like 60 yeah. pitches itch. So you could see a lot of pinch hitting in this in this game. I think we've seen from John Schneider lately that, like, he's going to he's gonna, – do what he can to force some offense here, whether that's a hit and run or in a you know safety squeeze, whether that's like pinch hitting in the fifth, sixth inning, whether that's making like four or five moves within one inning, if that's like Kevin Biggio's playing shortstop, if that's George Springer's got to go play center, if Dalton Varsho has to catch, like we've seen a willingness to just like get a little bit grimy and get a little bit crazy just to force the offense wherever you can. So Kevin Gosman, he's only faced Texas once this year, gave up one run over six innings. It was a home run, but it was a bit of a weird start. He didn't really miss a lot of bats in that one. He didn't strike a ton of guys out. It, it was kind of a, you know, it, it wasn't one of those games where a team's swinging at, at everything early. Or it's not one of those ones where they laid off everything. He wasn't super pitch efficient, but he didn't walk anyone really. It was, it was a bit of an odd start. What are you looking for from Gosman here? Especially with the note that, you know, Chris Black sent a note along earlier that, you you split up Gosman's performance by good offense and bad offense, and there are some yellow flags there at least. Fastballs down. I think that's the one like thread that I can kind of draw through his better starts this year is when he has command of his fastball down in the zone. Helps when it's like 96-97 instead of 93-94. The velo helps too, but when he's dotting it down, I think that just ties everything together for him. Don't, uh, you know, think his slider is in a great spot right now and would not be throwing a ton of those. You, you know, you might steal a first pitch strike here and there, but it's a pitch that's gotten him in trouble recently. And just, I don't know that the, you know, the the confidence in it is really there right now to use it in a big spot. Um, I think fastballs located down in the zone, splitter playing off of that. Keep it simple. Do what makes you great. Hopefully you've got your velo tonight. And, uh, you know, good defense behind him helps as well. Like the Blue Jays improved outfield defense has been a huge thing oh, yeah. for Kevin Gosman this year. Yeah. And he still has a, a really high BABIP. <laughs> so it's still, uh, it's not uh, not perfect yet. Um, but I feel like you're seeing the FIP normalize, yeah. right? This year, because like there's just fewer balls that like a Teoscar Hernandez or Lourdes Gurriel Jr. were not getting to. Yeah. Um, is the sweeper experiment done with him? We haven't seen one in a couple Seems starts. like it, man. Yeah. Like, they really thought that was going to be a big pitch for him in the second half. He was really excited about it, and I just don't think that the feel for it is there. It it's- retires with a 0-0-0 career batting average against, so put it in the, put it in the hall. He it's- threw 16 of them, and... and uh, Allowed nothing on it. I think he needs to revisit it in the offseason. Sure. Like, it's kind of noted. Like, everybody's developing a sweeper now because it's supposed to be pretty easy to develop. Not that anything in this game is easy, but 
Uh, I think that doing it in season is difficult, particularly when mm-hmm. like you're seeing times where he's having to skip bullpens because yeah. he's throwing 175 innings. Well, right? And if you're struggling with your slider and then you're also trying to work on a pitch that is similar yeah. but different, yeah, it's... I don't know. It's probably a difficult thing to do on the fly. To me, velo, fastballs dotted down in the zone, those are the big common denominators for a good Kevin Gosman start. Uh, Chris Sale on Saturday, and that's the only nice. confirmed Boston Red Sox starter. We think it'll be Brian Bayo and Claire so They got Crawford. a doubleheader today, right? Yeah. So they're so probably going to wait for that to sort out. They've got to do that. But we do know Chris Sale is penciled in there. He is... Uh, you know, a fascinating guy, a uh, an Arden's Welling type of guy when it comes to approach and the the changing over time and stuff. Obviously, not the sharpest of ERA, but what do you look forward to in a in a Chris Sale start that you'll get to see up close? I haven't followed his season okay. too closely. I think it's been pretty kind of turbulent. Yeah, right? that, especially his last start, Baltimore destroyed him. Yeah. Um, so his the, you know the ERA is up around five now, but he's been he's also had days where like he strikes out nine or ten or eleven. Right. So it's uh, it's a bit of a. Is it not dissimilar to Lance Lynn's season where like some days he looks like the best pitcher in baseball and some days he looks like he should be headed for the uh, the <laughs> retirement home right after? Yeah, the Blues is going to be hoping for the latter, uh, you know, rather than the former. But we'll see. They got to look. You got to win. Yeah, like, that's it. Like they've like you said, their destiny is out of their hands now. They've got I think they got to go 10 and six. Mm-hmm. I think that's doable. Um, but, you know, it's possible that they don't. Like it's possible that they go, what would be eight and nine, right? Would yeah. be yeah. Or that no or eight and eight. Eight and eight. Yeah. Possible to go eight and eight and they don't qualify for the tournament. Yeah. I that's don't totally think, possible. I don't think eight and eight will get you in. And, no. But yeah. yeah. I, uh, it's possible you sneak in with nine. I think you want ten. If you have eleven, you're probably feeling pretty good. But yeah, you gotta win some of these games. All right, last one. Uh, any sleepers in the rugby world cup? Like any anyone you're you're liking that's a little off the radar. I know I know the the big countries are the big countries. Um, so it's a bit of recency bias because I was just watching them this morning, but I thought South Africa looked really good against okay. Scotland, especially in the second half. Um, France looked really good, I thought, in the opener. And England looked really good, but I feel that's a bit of a mirage. I don't think that's going to carry forward. We have to hope forward. so, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that, those are the... And I haven't like watched Australia yet, okay. so we'll see where they're at. But I, I mean, coming in, I liked France to okay. win it, honestly. And you're and, still feeling pretty good? But they looked really good in the opener. You know, they're dealing with some injury stuff. It's such a long tournament, six yeah. weeks, right? Six weeks, yeah. So, like, so much can happen. Yeah, I think it's minimum five days off between games. Yeah, sometimes you get really tight turnarounds. But, yeah, yeah. By, by the knockout stages, you know, it's just once a week. So, it'll be interesting. Well, glad it's here for you, man. Enjoy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the series this weekend. Thanks for taking the time out. Thanks, bud. Arden Welling of Sportsnet, of Sportsnet.ca. He will be uh, on the sideline this weekend uh, for the Boston series. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Mike Petriello of MLB.com wrote about David Schneider having the single greatest offensive start in baseball history over the first 25 games. We'll dig in on that. We'll whip around baseball as well. He's got some cool Ronald Acuna stuff for us too. Mike Petriello next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, uh, drifting swiftly into darkness, as Jeff Rosenstock says there. Uh, joining us now, fresh off a, a vacation, a couple pretty good pieces off vacation at MLB.com. It's Mike Petriello. Mike, how are you this morning, buddy? Mr. Murphy, I'm talking to you, so I'm doing just fine. Uh, you, you flatter me. You flatter me. How was your time off? 
Uh, it was great. Got out of town for a couple of weeks, got home, got the kids back into school. Playoffs are upcoming. It's best time of the year. Are there playoffs coming in New York? Um, well, I'm <laughs> talking about the upcoming hockey season for yes. my New Jersey Devils. Of yeah. course, yes. of course. Go Devils. Uh, I could tell you several players on their team, probably, if I, if I thought really hard about it. Um, okay, so, Mike, you hit the ground running when you come back off of vacation. couple great pieces at MLB.com this week. Let's start with the Blue Jays-focused one uh, because – you know, we're, we're reaching for a little bit of positivity here after the last three games. You wrote a piece about Davis Schneider having the best offensive start to a major league career ever. Uh, before last night's offer, he had a 1.315 OPS through 25 games. It was the highest of all time. And I guess for anyone who didn't read the article, they should go to MLB.com and read it. But spoil it for us. Will Davis Schneider finish his career as the greatest hitter of all time? Uh, only if he stops playing after today. I okay. mean, this is actually, it's an easy one to write because the Blue Jays haven't played for the last three days, so I yes. didn't have to update any of the numbers. <laughs> so that was nice. You know, everybody watching has seen Davis Schneider do amazing things, right? So you don't necessarily need fancy numbers to know that this guy's off to a massive start. At the same time, if you can say, no, literally in baseball history, no one has started their career like this. I think that's a pretty cool thing to be able to say. It's funny. I actually got a nice note from his dad yesterday Aww. saying, this is amazing. Thanks for writing about him. Like our family's so happy. Like, of course, as you would be. Uh, but there's some cautionary tales too. Like if you look at the list of the best starts through 25 games, like sure, you'll see like Reese Hoskins and Albert Pujols and, and Willie McCovey. You also see Mandy Brooks from the 1925 Cubs, who I know a lot more about today than I did yesterday. Man, there was some old shortstop named Archie Vaughn that came up on the show yesterday because he's the only guy in 1935 with a higher OPS at shortstop than Corey Seager has this year. And now we're going, what, what's the name you just said? Uh, I said Mandy Brooks. Archie Vaughn's a Hall of Famer. He drowned in like a swimming pool or something. He's a very famous. Star. Well, I didn't know about the drowning. I know he's a Hall of Famer. I just mean we're, we're coming. We're throwing back to the 30s and 20s a lot on this show this week to contextualize guys is uh, is all. Um, OK, so obviously there are cautionary tales within there, but we are better equipped now than we were in the, the 20s and 30s to dig in on a guy's hot start and try to figure out what might be real. You did that. Um, what stands out to you? about what Schneider's done that you think is something, hey, he can sustain and, you know, not at a 1.3 OPS level, but pretty good indicators he owns some real offensive skills here. Yeah, that's the trick, right? Like, you know, he's not going to slug 800 or whatever he's at forever, and it's only 100 and something plate appearances. And we know for some of these things, like batting average especially, you need hundreds and hundreds, maybe even a 1,000 plate appearances to kind of get a feel of, like, what's real and what's not just, like, good luck. And the things that we can we can key on pretty quickly for a batter, uh, plate discipline's like the very first thing, you know? So he has the lowest chase rate in all baseball right now, or at least when I wrote this the other day. So he does not go outside the strike zone. And that's a really valuable skill. I mean, that's what Juan Soto does. You know, that's what Mookie Betts does. And that's meaningful pretty quickly. And to say that this far into his career, nobody has chased less often than he has. That's that is meaningful to me. And then you look at like the walk rate in his minor league career. That's something he's done. I'm very confident in saying this man will walk a lot. And when you look at the last like decade worth of seasons, of guys who have walked at least like 15% of the time, it's really hard to do that and not be at least above average. So even though he doesn't hit the ball that hard, he keeps it off the ground better than like anybody at all. And you know, he's not going to chase. And I don't think he's going to be an all-star every year, 
but I do think he's going to be an average to above average hitter for years to come just based on that skill set. That's pretty good to have. It is. So you don't, you know, you don't have to destroy the ball. Obviously, it's great if you do, but by having a very low chase rate, you force pitchers into the zone and to give you pitches, you know, you can at least barrel up. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good approach. Now, the absolute extreme of this is something, you know, Sara has joked about. I know you referenced it in your piece is like, yeah, statistically, you know, the, the way we see the more and more selective you are, hitters just shouldn't swing. Um, but you have to have that ability to barrel up a ball underneath it. You can't just take the walks. Um, and, and part of this is, you know, you said that the barrel rate is uh, exit velocity combined with launch angle. And, you know, it tells us something about the, the quality of contact there. He also just by a way of not hitting the ball on the ground, that, that does a lot for him too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hitting the ball on the ground is essentially death unless you are extremely fast or you can place it very well. And if you're not going to hit the ball that hard, like he doesn't, you need to make sure you place it in a way where you're going to get the absolute most out of it. And that's what he's done, right? He hits it in the air, but not pop-ups. He hits it down the line and not to dead center field. He is, I don't want to say like a limited hitter because that's not fair, but it's clear he's not going to be a Aaron Judge, John Carlos Stanton, Vlad at his best kind of exit velocity monster. That's, that's not his game. So what it seems to me that he's done is really taken the skills that he has and kind of keyed in his game on what will work best for him. Like it's never a one size fits all thing. It's lovely to say you should hit the ball hard. Everybody <laughs> wants to hit the ball hard. You know, Billy Hamilton, that's not someone who's going to hit the ball hard. He's, his skills are somewhere else. And I think that's what teams and players are getting better at. It's not just what works for everybody. It's like, what works for me? What skills do you have? What can we improve upon? What's less likely to be improved upon? We're probably not going to teach you to hit the ball 118 all the time. So what can we do within the skill set you have? And that's what I think has really been uh, successful here. Yeah, and it's a good foundational skill set to have, right? It's a good floor-raising skill set. Obviously, you know, ceiling goes a, a lot of way, and it's why we spent a lot of time when you come on talking about, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. because the, the ceiling has dissipated there. But if you're a guy who was a 28th round pick and you're just trying to make sure you have a major league career, those floor raising stats are, uh, or those floor raising pieces of your approach are pretty good ones. Uh, Mike, I do want to pivot to Vlad momentarily. Obviously you wrote a, a couple weeks back now, the uh, 11 possible theories about Vlad. We had you on, we talked about it a ton. There's a great piece and a lot of fun. Things have gone even further south since then. I know you haven't dug in on, on the numbers at that same level, but what do you make of this not only continuing, but some of the underlying process stuff has, with the exception of you know this Kansas City series on the weekend, which was maybe just a matter of who you were facing and when, um, the, even the underlying stuff has now started to go in the wrong direction with Guerrero. Yeah, here's, here's theory number 12, Blake. Uh, it's cursed. It's just <laughs> an absolute curse. Uh, the fact that in the second half, he is slugging 404 at the moment. Like It's very possible he will have a slugging percentage in the second half that starts with three soon, which is <laughs> just absolutely unbelievable. And when I wrote that piece a couple months back, part of it was, yes, he's struggling, but it's weird because all the underlying stuff is great, right? He's still pounding the ball. And, and, and all this stuff says he should be hitting well, and it's not happening. Maybe that gives you a little more confidence that it, he'll figure it out. And that has kind of gone away. Like the quality of contact it was great early in the season. And in the first two weeks, December, it's, it's poor. Like it's not bad luck now. It's, it's more of earning what he's gotten as opposed to not being able to understand why he wasn't getting more early on. And listen, like everybody else on the entire planet, the why behind that is the big open question. I don't have a why for you. I don't think anybody does right now. But uh, it, the lack of production now 
it's just different than it was earlier, I think is the way to look at it. He's just not performing well now, whereas before you could say, well, he is performing. It just hasn't happened. Baseball is weird. And that whole thing is a little disconcerting to me. Yeah, it is. It certainly is. And look, he wouldn't be the first player to have a bit of a down year after establishing stardom and then find his way back. Bryce Harper did it. Um, Ronald Acuna Jr. is probably our our best recent example. Now, he dealt with a a knee injury for most of last year that he kind of opened up about after the season. We don't know what Vlad's dealing with in terms of, of knee and wrist and things like that, but he's playing every day. So we have to, you know, evaluate what we're seeing. Uh, Wanted to actually ask you about Ronald Acuna Jr. Anyway, so while we're here, obviously he's had this this massive turnaround. Last year, his WRC plus had fallen to 115, which was right about where Vlad's is now. Um, you know, the the base running was still there a little bit, but the power went away. The walk rate went down. He has bounced back this year, and it's obviously it's great to see the power back. The stolen base numbers are so much fun, but there's something else he's been able to do this year, Mike, that I know you think is a pretty big indicator of his ability to maybe not sustain, hey, eight-win season level, but to remain on this level as one of the greatest hitters on the planet. Yeah, you think about everything Acuna does, and the, and the first word that comes to mind for me is loud right? Like huge (laughs) home runs and tons of stolen bases and monster throws from right field. And obviously he's got a big personality and he likes to celebrate and bat flip and all this kind of stuff that makes him great. And I almost feel like we're so focused on this highlight reel stuff that we've, we've maybe overlooked uh, an older school thing that he's done. So he has cut his strikeout rate in half last year. He struck out 24% of the time, which isn't even that bad for a power hitter in today's game. It's, it's fine. And this year he struck out 11 and a half percent of the time. So I went back through baseball history and I looked at everybody who had at least 400 plate appearances in two consecutive years just to see if anybody had cut their strikeout rate by as that much, which is a bit of a rigged question, right? If you're starting out like Tony Gwynn, there's only so much you can cut, but you know, still wanted to see. And it turns out only one player has ever cut their strikeout rate by more than that. And there's a huge caveat here. That was uh, Mark Belanger, who was uh, Orioles shortstop in the 1960s and 70s, excellent defender. And he cut his strikeout rate by like fractions of a percentage point more, but he did it from 1968 to 1969, which was a year where there was expansion teams and rule changes after the year of the pitcher and all sorts of extenuating circumstances as to why he could have cut a strikeout rate a little bit like that. And I think that's incredible. I think the fact that Acuna has been able to do that without actually losing any of his power and actually increasing his power in some ways, it's really going to show what an amazing athlete he is. You just don't see this happen at all. It's it's an incredibly hard thing. And and like to do it at that degree and like it's it's such a obviously there's a physical change to it, too. You know, he's never been a monstrously high chase and whiff guy, but those have improved. But it's it's like, uh, man, when, you know, teams are going to be this more selective with you. It's pretty it's a pretty fascinating if this if the jump was small and then to see it's like the greatest jump of all time is uh, is pretty pretty special and I think you know obviously people are going to have different opinions about the NL MVP race and that you know what you did last year doesn't really uh, apply to that but it's still uh, it's still pretty cool to see so um, if you look at Ronald Acuna Jr.'s StatCast page everything is obviously bright red and maxed out uh, on the offensive side except for a newer stat there called sweet spot percentage and that differs a little bit from from barrel rate um, for whatever reason uh, that we can get into another time Acuna is low on that actually that's one where Vlad grades really really low hitting it off the sweet spot it's one of his lesser StatCast stats I use that as a pivot though because if Acuna is in the MVP conversation in the NL and is having this tremendous offensive season Mr. Sweet Spot Corey Seager is uh, making 
probably too late uh, a push here given the season that Shohei Otani's had. But when you look at what Seager's done and, and another guy who, yeah, the stat cast page is, is maxed out. He's going to win a batting title. He has the best OPS as a shortstop uh, since way back in the day. Um, if Seager had not missed as much time as he did, do you think he would have had a chance to, to kind of knock off what we all thought was a, a sure thing with Shohei in the AL MVP race? I would say probably not just because not only is Otani going to end up with the most war, like all of the discussion about like the amazing two-way player that he's had. I, I think the answer is no. I, I think you're totally correct to say that Seager's having a great year, but I have a question for you. Is it clear Seager will end up second in the MVP right now? Is no, I guess Julio Rodriguez, Rodriguez would be in the mix as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's not to take anything away from Seager, who, as you said, has had a phenomenal year. Um, but I, I, I think what he has done, has maybe flown under the radar just a little bit because this is the guy who's always been a good player, you know, first round pick of the Dodgers and a ton of success there. And what he's doing now is it's beyond what he's ever done before. Like he's really taken on to this next level, which is uh, fantastic. And I got to say, I mean, you have seen it firsthand the last couple of days, the, the Rangers need it right now. Like Scherzer's hurt, mm-hmm. right? Their pitching is not great. The bullpen's not very great. I know none of this says a lot of good things about a Blue Jays team that just lost three in a row to them, <laughs> but Corey Seager is, you think about the trajectory of how the Rangers have gone from being basically the worst team in baseball two or three years ago, right? And a lot of it is going out and getting these superstars like Corey Seager, like Marcus Simeon, like that entire middle infield. And I think Seager is going to finish either second or third. And in a year where Otani's going to win, that's that's still a pretty good thing to say. Yeah, and let's hope, uh, you know, what happens to him next year isn't what happened the last time someone came second uh, to Shohei Otani in MVP voting, uh, as may have happened uh, uh, here. Uh, another Rangers question that I, that I want to ask for you. I know we have like a suite of different catcher defense metrics and we we break it down into blocking framing help with the run game and stack cast will measure it a little differently than fan graphs than baseball perspectives but you look at all of these things and a name that comes close to the top pretty much no matter where you look is Jonah Heim, the, the catcher for Texas enough so that yesterday he started behind the plate for the fourth consecutive day. Uh, they are really, really leaning on him. When you look at the defensive catchers around baseball, maybe Gabriel Moreno has, has a case in the NL and people here don't want to hear about it, but how highly does Jonah Heim rank for you among uh, defensive backstops? Extremely well, although I'm going to say something that may seem counterintuitive, right? I think he is one of the best defensive catchers in baseball. And yet I'm not sure he's the best defensive catcher on his own team. Austin Hedges. That's only because Austin Hedges. Exactly right. Who's like one of the weakest hitting catchers or even players in recent history. I mean, there's one reason Austin Hedges is in the majors. It's because he's a wildly well-regarded backstop. Obviously he's a backup. He's not going to play that much. Um, Heim, when he got injured, that was a big blow to them. And in fact, I just realized this this morning, uh, Texas had six all-stars this year and five of them have gotten hurt since the (laughs) all-star game. (laughs) except for Simeon and now Heim's back, obviously, and Seager's back. But yeah, if you look at the rankings right now, uh, at least via StatCast, the two best catchers defensively in the American League are Heim and Hedges. And obviously Hedges did a lot of that in the National League. The only guys who are right ahead of them are Patrick Bailey and Sean Murphy, who like in another year, Sean Murphy probably has a quiet MVP case to make himself because he's crushing homers and playing elite defense on uh, behind the plate. But we've really come a long way in the past five, 10, 15 years, I think, in, in how to quantify catchers. And I, everybody knows we're still missing stuff, right? You can't quantify game calling or working with the pitching staff, and that stuff's super valuable, and you'll probably never be able to do that. But in terms of what we can, Jonah Himes right up there. I mean, he's he's a guy who's bounced around. I think this is his fourth different organization, never highly regarded. 
and uh, he's learned to hit as well. Like he's one of the quietest stars on a very good Rangers team. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty impressive. And uh, yeah, Austin Hedges going for some some history as well. He now has uh, five seasons in a row with a WRC plus under 50, but has still gotten like a, a reasonable number of plate appearances. Uh, it's got to be got to be getting to some pretty historic territory there. So uh, we have a number of stats to, to try to measure catchers. Um, we'll continue to learn unless the AAA rule changes all come and catchers don't matter anymore, which uh, I've talked to a few catchers about who are, are not thrilled if those get adopted on mass. Uh, but Mike, before I let you go here, I got to ask you about one thing that we know is coming at some point. You know, you guys add Sweet Spot quietly to uh, the Statcast pages. We know you guys have been toying around with some bat speed stuff. Uh, can we get a little taste? When are we going to get a little taste of some of this bat speed data that I, I know Baseball America has kind of already got ahead and put some stuff up there? But uh, when can us uh, normies start playing with it? Well, let me let me clear something up first because I I will let you in on a secret. It's incredibly difficult to name stuff, so I feel like sweet spot percentage people thing to do with where the ball hits the bat, right? It's just it's a launch angle thing. Yeah. It's how often do you get at the right launch angles between eight and thirty-two, like where it matters. It's essentially the hard hit rate of exit velocity, if that makes any sense. <laughs> uh, as far as like the actual bat stuff, this is the first season that the uh, upgraded hardware has been in all thirty. I was going to say 32 parks, but that's not right. 30 parks. <laughs> uh, so it's like it's coming in and, you know, we wanted to make sure that the quality was good and, you know, context was there and that stuff all takes time. So my hope is some stuff will be available over the winter opening day, but no promises. But I can tell you it's being worked on and it's definitely it, it's coming. But, you know, the tough part's going to be we're not going to have years and years and years of, of back data for this. Right. I can't tell you what happened in 2021 or 2018 or anything like that. So this year is going to be the first year of full data. And then as time goes on, as it piles up, we'll be able to really see some trends and stuff. I'm excited. Yeah, it'll be really cool. And, and you know, I was kicking around with, with Chris Black yesterday. Hey, you know what I'd really like to look at if we get it at a granular game by game data is like, what happens to bat speed? You know, your first five games back from the IL or a wrist injury that kept you out one day and stuff like that. There's a lot of uh, a lot of fun stuff we can do with it. Uh, Mike, I lied really, really quickly before I let you go here. You also wrote a great piece about how for the first time ever, the best player on an average baseball lineup is hitting second. The data has said this should be the case for a while. Uh, how have we finally got here where bat your best player second is now the norm? Isn't that wild? Like for how many centuries and decades was it? The leadoff guy hits first and he's fast. And the second guy can get the runner over and then your big boys hit third and fourth. And nothing had really changed until about 10 years ago. Uh, even as recently as last year, every single year in history, the most productive spot by OPS was either third or fourth or a tie between third and fourth. It never changed. And you started to see the trend change in 2013 or so. Mike Trout, Jose Bautista hitting second. And now you look at lineups around the league, and it's like, well, Ronald Acuna hits first, and the Dodgers have Betts and Freddie Freeman hitting first and second. And all these teams have their dudes hitting high up in the order. To some extent, it's not complicated, right? It's get your best hitters more plate appearances. You know, you don't want... If you give the opposing team the gift of not having your best hitter hit in the first inning when you've got the chance to set your lineup the way you want. That to me has always been nuts. And I, I think teams are really starting to take that to heart. Um, I think the flip side of this is that batting order never, ever, ever, ever matters as much <laughs> as people want it to matter. Right? It's like, it just doesn't matter that much. If you have good players, hit them, put your worst guys at the end, you'll be fine. Um, but I thought it was fascinating that for the first time ever, like the we've gotten to this tipping point. The best guys hit second, the best guys hit first and second. You know, don't wait, let them hit. I like it. And hey, batting order matters if you have two hours of radio to fill about a single baseball team every day because uh, it's uh, it's an easy five minutes here and there. Uh, Mike Petriello, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. I really appreciate it.
Thanks a lot, Blake. Mike Petriello, MLB.com. Make sure you go over there and check out that Davis Schneider piece. A ton of great work from Mike and, and everyone at MLB.com uh, as well if you want to read more, but especially the Davis Schneider piece that Davis Schneider's dad really uh, appreciated. Um, there was just a smorgasbord of Davis Schneider content this week. Uh, we mentioned the Ben Clemens one earlier into the Schneiderverse. Uh, Patrick Dubuque also had one over at Baseball Perspectives. Seems like all our guests just write a Davis, write a terrific Blue Jays piece right after they come on with us. Uh, we got to do that in a, in the other order moving ahead. Tonight, Kevin Gosman against Nate Evaldi. Now, we'll see how long Evaldi goes. Maybe this is your chance to get a bunch of innings in against the Rangers bullpen. But when we set up this series, we talked about how important it was to get Dane Dunning out of that game early, to get Jordan Montgomery out of that game early. And it's not just to get to hit more against a bad Texas bullpen, but the more guys have to be used, the more arms that Bruce Bochy has to go to, the more difficult these decisions get and the more fatigued a, a high-end reliever is uh, it later in the series. Well, guess what? They're more than fine heading into today. They are great. They can, if this game is close at all, if Native Aldi can only go three innings because they're still managing his pitch count, uh, they have pretty much all their arms ready to go. Now, it's not the greatest group of arms of all time, but the Blue Jays have struggled hitting against just about everyone. Uh, you'll want to try to get to Nate Evaldi early. And man, the, the fact that he's among the league leaders in ground ball rates and he'll hammer stuff low and away like Montgomery did. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if the Jays can have a better approach and adjust a little better than they did yesterday and throughout this series. Uh, thanks to Mike Petriello, Arden Zwelling, Dan Zimborski, and Joe Siddle for coming on. Sam McKee and Brent Gunning have you next. Blair and Barker, Five to seven, as usual, to set this one up. They'll have Jay's talk for you after the game as well. We'll be back at 10 a.m. tomorrow to hopefully talk about a win and not a sweep and set up that Boston Red Sox series uh, properly. Thanks to Jeff Lance and Jennifer behind the glass. Deep breath. Maybe the Jays can avoid a sweep here. We'll talk to you tomorrow.